handout, you'll notice that um, we have a verse, a rather, well, somewhat lengthy verse. Uh, John, well, John 11.35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. The first verse I memorized, by the way, was Jesus wept when I was a boy in Sunday school. I was very proud of myself for that. But as the years have gone by, I've, I've come to realize that this verse, which I initially just thought of as the shortest verse in the Bible, was so much more than that. Because it captured the heart of God, at least in part. Jesus wept. He cried. Do you know what he cried from? Do you know what that was connected to? It was the death of a man named Lazarus, who was his friend. And he loved Lazarus. And even though it becomes, (laughs) amazingly, that becomes the impetus for one of the greatest miracles of the ministry of Christ, which is the resurrection of Lazarus, which anticipates uh, his coming resurrection. Nonetheless, when he he first hears the news of Lazarus' death, his heart is touched. And the Bible tells us that Jesus weeps. He wept because his friend died. And I think he wept because as the son of man, as a, as a fully human being, the loss of that relationship mattered to him. And I find that very compelling because you know why? And I know this is not always true when we're younger. It may be true. I'm not going to suggest that, that pain, suffering, loss, and disappointment are the exclusive domain of those who are no longer young. Some of us were born into real pain. But Frequently, we can think of it as something that happens to people who are further along in life. But I'm going to tell you something. All of us will at some point experience loss and disappointment. And people we love will leave us too soon than we wanted. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about um, just life and death. And uh, I was reading another book recently by uh, Billy Graham. You know, I, I haven't read a lot of Billy Graham's books, but he's an amazing man, obviously. We know he dominated in so many ways, in, in, a, in a humble way. But... A, an authentic way, the the landscape of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in the 20th century. An amazing man, amazing ministry, wrote many books. He's now in his 90s. And he wrote a book that he thinks may be his last book he ever writes because he feels like his time on earth is almost up. But he wrote the book. It's called Nearing Home. It's an appropriate title for him. And in that book, what he shared, which really caught my attention, was he said, you know, he said, I, when I was younger, he goes, I always assumed that I was going to die young. Because he says, all my family, they died either younger or in middle years. None of them lived to be into their older years, he says. And he goes, and plus the way I was living my life, I was working so hard. I wasn't really getting enough sleep. I wasn't resting. I was really working hard. He goes, goes, I just assumed I was going to die in my middle years. And he thought, and he goes, you know, he he goes, I prepared my heart to die. I was okay with it. I I trust Christ. He goes, so I was prepared for that. He goes, but what I wasn't prepared for was growing really old. He says, I was, I was ready to face death, but I have, I, he goes, I'll be honest with you, I have, I have a much harder time now because I really didn't prepare to be where I'm at. He goes, now I'm in my 90s, he says. I've watched people I love and my friends, they, they're, they're gone. Most of them, like one or two are left, he said. He says, the wife that I had loved my whole life, 
she, she's dead, and, you know, she's gone to be with Lord, her, Ruth Graham Bell, an amazing woman in her own right. He talked about in the book, he just the, in the unfillable void that her loss has brought into his, into his life. And how he yearns for the day when he will see her again. And he, and he talks about the blessed hope in Christ. Very, it, it, it really, it's very touching. But then he also mentioned how he, he goes, and it's been come hard, he goes, I forget things. He says, I, 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 he goes, honestly, I'm, I, I don't want to admit it. He goes, but I, I, I can't even get out of a chair on my own. I need a little, someone to help me get up. And he goes, it's hard. You know, as he's talking about the loss of his health, his strength, his vitality, and he's wrestling with his faith in Christ, what comes out in the book is even though he has diminishing health, he has an undiminished hope that grips him. And he's challenging himself and others to age gracefully, to embrace the promise of Christ, and to be careful about getting angry, resentful, bitter, or closed in on life. Beautiful. I found myself thinking a lot about this because our church is actually heading towards um, a kind of a unique time in the sense that it, this year is a very unusual year. It marks the 60 years that our church has been in existence, 50 years in the mission. And for me personally, it's been 25 years this year that I've been as, as the lead pastor here at Cornerstone. I was a youth pastor before that. But I remember that year, I found myself, because we were doing some, we were preparing, we're gonna have a special service to commemorate that. We're gonna talk more about that in the weeks and months ahead. But I, we've been talking a little bit about our history. And I, I go, you know, I remember back 25 years ago when I, when I, when I, started, and I, and I remember what it was like for me because it was really scary because the person who had been the most important person in my life was dying. He was our previous pastor, our founding pastor, um, who had pastored a small church and drove a muni bus for, his li- for, for his, his, most of his life, his, his last half of his life. But he was an authentic man, a true lover of God. When my house blew up, my home blew up when I was just my brother and I, we were just kids and, and not even quite teens. Our home blew apart. He became such an important figure to me. Um, he was like a, okay, you may have a few people like this in your life. They're North Star figures. They're there. You, 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 you look, you go, I count on that one. That person's my North Star. They're there. He was like that for me in, in my walk with Christ. And when I got to that point where I was going to now have to assume a responsibility, the knowledge that the person that I had counted on most, loved the most, been the most consistent person representing the Lord's heart to me in my life was, was going to be gone. And I felt all alone or very alone, and I was scared. And I remember that, that feeling when I lost him. It was more than just losing someone I loved. It was losing someone I counted on to go to. That's hard. I know some of you have felt that. You know what that's like. You know, Gerald Sitzer, who wrote the, the book that I referred to, A Grace Disguise, said this. And this is in your handout. I want you to look at this with me. He said, and this is, this is a simple but profound statement, you guys. He says, sooner or later, all people suffer loss in, in little doses or big ones. Suddenly or over time, privately or in public settings, But loss is as much a part of life as birth is. For as surely as we are born into this world, we suffer loss before we leave it. You know, some of us, 
another reason why we relate so much to what Christ said when he, when he, when he was weeping over the loss of his friend is because we know what it's like to lose things. Just like I, I felt that loss in my life. And, and some of us are battling with the loss of health in our lives, like Billy Graham was talking about. And some of us have lost our jobs or we've lost relationships that mattered a lot to us or we've watched a friendship begin to just end. Those are hard. Those are losses. Those are losses. And life is filled with them. So, you know, for me, one of, one of the hardest losses sometimes to deal with is a loss of something that we were anticipating. The loss of something we were hoping in. And could, we could actually see it happening in front of us, and it was there. It was as if it was already there. And then to watch it disappear on us. That is a hard loss. That's a hard loss to recover from. It's hard to get back up when we invested our heart into something, and it didn't happen. But it, it was about to. We, we were already counting on it. That's hard. It's a hard loss. I was thinking about how some losses, sister says what, there's some losses come in, in little doses, some come in big ones. You know what? He suffered a big one. I'm just going to read a little piece. Catastrophic loss wrecks destruction like a massive flood. It's unrelenting, unforgiving, uncontrollable. Brutally erosive to the body, mind, and spirit. Sometimes loss does its damage instantly as if it were a flood, just like it comes upon us, resulting from a broken dam that releases a great torrent of water that just sweeps away everything in its path, like, a, like floodwaters breaking out of a dam that just covers everything, he says. Sometimes loss, though, does its damage very gradually as if it were like a flood resulting from unceasing rain that causes rivers and lakes to swell until they spill over their banks engulfing, saturating, and destroying whatever the water touches. Listen, in either case, he says, catastrophic loss, big loss, leaves the landscape of one's life forever changed. He goes, my experience was like a dam that broke. In one moment, I was just overrun by a torrent of pain I did not expect. Linda, my wife of nearly 20 years, Loved to be around her children. Each one of them was a gift to her because after 11 years of infertility, she never thought she would have any of her own. Though she earned a master's degree in music from the University of Southern California, became a professional singer, choir director, voice coach, served church and community, she could never entirely let go of her longing for children. And when she delivered four healthy children in six years, she was just amazed and overjoyed. She relished the wonder of motherhood. And it was in the fall of 1991, Linda was teaching a unit of homeschool to our two oldest children, Catherine and David, and she was teaching on the subject of Native American culture. And so she got the idea. She decided to complete the unit of study by attending a powwow at a Native American reservation in rural Idaho. They decided to have a family field trip. His mother was in town, he says, my mother, whose name is Grace, interestingly enough had come to visit us for the weekend. She decided, decided to join us for the excursion. So then they, they talked about how that day went and what an experience it was and how, how much they, they enjoyed it. And then it says, by 8.15, however, the children had, had enough, and so we returned to our van, loaded and buckled up and left for home, but then it was dark by then. And 10 minutes into our trip home, I noticed an oncoming car on a lonely stretch of highway driving extremely fast. I slowed down at, at a curve, but the other car did not. It, it jumped its lane, it smashed head on into our minivan. And I learned later that the alleged driver was drunk, driving 85 miles per hour. He was accompanied by his pregnant wife, also drunk, who was killed in the accident. And I remember those first moments after the accident as if everything was happening in slow motion. 
They're like frozen into my memory with a terrible vividness. After recovering my breath, I turned around to survey the damage. The scene was chaotic. I remember the look of terror on the faces of my children and the feeling of horror that swept over me when I saw the unconscious and broken bodies of Linda, this is wife, my four-year-old daughter, Diana Jane, and my mother, three generations, gone. The, he says, I remember getting Catherine, then eight, David, seven, John, two, out of the van, through my door, and the only one that would open. I remember taking pulses, doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, trying to save the dying and and calm the living. I I remember the feeling of panic that struck my soul as I watched Linda, my mother, and Diana Jane all die before my eyes. I remember the pandemonium that followed, people gawking, lights flashing from from emergency vehicles, a helicopter whirring above my, my overhead, cars lining up, medical experts doing what they could to help, and I remember the realization in that moment sweeping over me that I would soon plunge into a darkness from which I might never again emerge as a sane, normal, believing man. Sitzer goes on to talk about how he recovered and how the Lord began to work in his life and how he found the grace of God through the most incredible pain and how he, 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 he discovered the beauty of Jesus in a way that he could have never seen it before. I was thinking about this. I found myself reflecting that as a follower of Jesus, one of the most challenging things that we often find ourselves having to deal with has to do with, with the pain of life. And I remember that it was fairly early on. Um, well, I remember I was introduced to a great Christian writer named C.S. Lewis. And some of you have heard his name. Some of you have seen his, the, the films that have been, you know, uh, now become famous for the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote those books for children. He and his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. But, but Lewis was not always a believer. In fact, when he was a professor at Oxford, he wasn't avowed atheist and proud of it. He called himself an informed atheist. But somewhere around his 30th year, when he turned 31, he says he, he came to a point of opening up his heart to Jesus. And as an atheist and a man of great intellect, he turned and opened up his soul. He says, I, I became almost like I was, he says, I was almost drugged into the kingdom, the most reluctant convert, I suppose, in all of England, he said. But I came anyway. And his life changed, and he becomes this amazing writer. In the, in the 20th century, there probably are few people that have ever impacted people's faith so much as, the writing, uh, as this writer, C.S. Lewis. One of the books he wrote, I think it was in 1940, he wrote the book, The Problem of Pain. And he was trying to wrestle with the reality of pain and unfairness and, and the ugliness of the human race at times in the way they treat one another and inflict pain upon one another with what it means to live in a world where the love of God also is present. And how do I reconcile my faith with all of that? I remember reading one piece, and I put this in your handout there. It says this. He says, the possibility of pain, just kind of look with me there. He says, the possibility of pain is inherent in the very existence of a world where souls can meet. When souls become wicked, they will certainly use this possibility to hurt one another. So there is the capacity to inflict pain relationally and also on one another. Human beings have this. He says, and and again, part of this is connected, and I'm going to put a couple of things up here, and I'm going to come back to what Lewis is saying. 
But part of what this is connected to is a, is a, a conviction that I have around one of the ways that we are able to confront this issue of pain and suffering and disappointment and loss. So I want to suggest firstly that part of the way that we can do this as followers of the Lord, what the scripture teaches us, is that when we, we, we need to think of our world and, and understand the fact that we live in a broken world that is um, filled with flawed people. And this sin-impacted world of ours um, that's filled with flawed and broken people means that it, <laughs> there is the capacity to inflict pain and wounding on one another because that's what we are at the core. That's why we need a Savior, the Bible says. Because we not only live in this reality, but we also at times express it. We are wounded and we also wound. And anybody who thinks we don't, we have to be honest with it. We have the ability to wound and we hurt one another. We may never lift a hand, but we can say things. And we can, oh, oh, uh, that's not even an ar arguable fact. It, it, Lewis goes on to say this. He says, you know what? He was thinking about it. He goes, you know, he goes, when I think about how human beings hurt one another, he goes, and the pain of life and the pain that's inflicted on people, he goes, he makes a statement. He says, you know what? I think this accounts perhaps for about four-fifths of the sufferings of, of, of men, that we would say of human beings. It is people, not God, who has produced racks and whips and prisons and slavery and guns and bayonets and bombs. It's by human avarice, that's greed, or human stupidity, not by the churlishness or the, rant, the rude insensitivity of nature that we have poverty and overwork. No, those are products of human beings hurting other human beings. He says, so don't blame God for that. He says, we live in a broken world. But then he turns it around in a, in a moment of sheer honesty. He says, but even if that's true, and I believe it is, he says, it doesn't explain another thing to me that I'm having a hard time wrestling with. He says, but there remains nonetheless much suffering which cannot thus be traced to ourselves. For even if all the suffering were, were man-made, we should still like to know the reason for the enormous permission to torture their fellows which God gives the worst of people, the worst of men. In other words, why does God allow it? Man, I... I love, I love this because it's real, it's honest, it's authentic. Yeah, we live, number one, we live in a broken world. You know what the Bible also teaches us? Jesus taught us this, number two. He taught us that in this world we are going to have, and it's a great principle, not exemption from hardship when we follow him, but that we are going to have access to an overcoming life. He never, he never sold, please, hear me. Jesus never told us we would, following him would be a problem-free life. He did, I think the scriptures teach us we probably will reduce some of our problems because the principles of God work. However, it doesn't mean exemption from the brokenness of our world. And why certain things happen, I don't know. I'll tell you this, there are people, any, there are people out there who will tell us that following Christ means we, have pro, no, we should never have any problems and we get everything we want. Basically, Jesus is like a genie. We rub him the right way, out comes whatever we want. And the thing is, I'm a person who believes in faith and I believe in optimism, but I want to tell you something. Anybody who truly says that, contrasting what Jesus taught us in John 16, that in the world you will have trials, that is at best... Um, mistaken and somewhat insensitive and at worst a crooked charlatan. 
that the way of the kingdom is pretty clear, that there will be, because we live on this side of eternity, there will be things that periodically happen that are unfair. At the same token, another part of the mystery, and Lewis will center in on this as well, as does Sitzer and many others who follow Christ and wrestle with the idea of pain and suffering and loss. This is third, third piece here. It's what God taught us. That God himself, number three, God himself, think about this, entered time to participate in our pain. It's, 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 like, it's like the Lord, God could have been an observer from a distance, but he doesn't do that. He comes into it. That's why I love Jesus when it says he wept. He felt the loss. When he's on the, on the cross, he suffers. That's real suffering. That's real pain. When he's abandoned, when he's left alone, that's real. God knows. He, I, he may not always get, someone says, he, God does not always give the answer that we are looking for, but he gives himself. He gives himself. That's why when you hear people say, the cross, the cross speaks what we may not always understand. Remember this, God so loved us that he entered into the pain. And at some level, he paves a way for something new yet to be. But in the meantime, between now and then, things happen. And some of them are very difficult. Some of us may say, well, I'm doing fine. Yeah, but if we live long enough, we're going to experience loss and pain, and we're going to have people in our lives who we love who experience it. I was, I was thinking about this, and Lord, in light of that, how are we supposed to live? Well, you know, think about Lewis. You know, later on, you know what we realized is that even when he was writing that, it's interesting because 20 years later, flash ahead, he's a much older man. He's never planned on getting married. He gets married. He, he finds someone at, at a latter part in his life. Her name is Joy. And the, and the film, Shadowlands, is based upon that experience. Because what happens is three years into the marriage, she dies of cancer. And his, he goes, why would God allow me to finally find someone? And they're gone. And he writes his classic book, A Grief Observed, in which his soul and his faith wrestle with loss at a very personal level. It became more than a theory. It became a real thing. Very powerful, profound. And it's, it's, it's like, it, the, what I love about the Bible, is it doesn't, it doesn't like um, try to coat everything with a nice veneer and just make everything neat. It's real. It's raw. We wrestle with faith. We grow. Life has challenging places. It's about trusting God. And so into this reality, I just have a couple of things I want to list about how I think we should live. And I'll do it fairly quickly. But I want us to think in this direction. This is what I've been trying to sit with. How do we live into this reality of ours where loss and pain are real as followers of Jesus between now and then? One way we do it is remembering this. We are, we are to live, um, not we are to, forbidden to live in fear and in paranoia. Hear what I'm saying? 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of soundness of mind. Whenever I feel fear trying to encroach itself into my life, Get into there. Get into my mind. I start envisioning things. What if this happens? What if that happens? So remember, God, you have not given me a spirit of fear. In fact, your word constantly tells me to not be afraid. One of the most common statements of Jesus that he would greet people with was, do not be afraid. Fear not. In fact, someone, the, the fear nots of Jesus are studying in and of themselves. Secondly, we are to live gratefully. 
What I mean by that is because there's so much good. There's a lot of stuff that happens in life that's not that easy to understand. And sometimes we say, God, why aren't you giving me the answer I want? Sometimes we hear nothing from God. Other times we begin to feel, we actually feel like God has given us an answer. We're reading his word and we go, you know what? That makes sense to me. Or we're having a conversation with someone like I did this last week. I'm talking to someone who had experienced incredible loss physically. I was saying, are you okay? Looking across from the table, sitting down. And, and he said, yeah, I'm okay. I'm good. And we had a, a completely, profoundly beautiful, encouraging conversation that was at some level a declaration of his faith in Jesus and his utter confidence in the Lord despite the loss of his health that was so evident before our eyes. And it made his faith not more fragile, but it actually made it more beautiful. And it blessed me incredibly gave me courage. I saw the gratitude in the man for the things of God. He says, you know what? In life, Bat, some tough stuff happens. He goes, but I've been incredibly blessed. There was a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness and optimism that was inside the heart. The Bible says, I will enter into his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. That one of the best ways to make our way through a life of pain and at times disappointment is to cultivate a grateful heart. We thank the Lord for the blessings. We thank the Lord for you know, someone said, well, you, I wish we didn't get what we, you know, I didn't, I didn't deserve this. And there are times when we go, I didn't deserve this. Why do I get, why did this happen to me? I didn't deserve this. And I said, that's true. There are times where we, we can be upset with, we say, you know what, we get what we didn't deserve. But you know what, we all, listen to this. Sometimes it's okay that we get what we don't deserve because if, if that's true, that's a reminder that we also get the grace of God and we don't deserve it, but he gives it anyway. And that's one of the amazing blessings. Thank you, Lord, that I don't always get what I deserve because I get you and I never earned what you gave me or have given or are giving. That's your grace. Thank you. That's gratitude. Thirdly, I was thinking about it. We are to live attentively. And I just did this. To me, that means with eyes wide open, especially in regards to small things. Listen to me, small things and special people. Come on, you guys little things that we often lose sight of. The fact that life is so fragile and so capable of turning on a razor's edge. Lord, in the meantime, let me live with gratitude. Let me not live in fear. Help me to live with attentive eyes. Let me be a person who sees small things, appreciates people that you've given to me, special people in my life. Let me not treat that casually like it's nothing. Let me honor the people you've given me to love. Let me to challenge my heart to love them better. Consider the lily of the field, Jesus said, in all of its beauty. Um, Jesus taught us to look at with discerning eyes. You know what that's going to mean? Listen to me. That's going to mean sometimes we're going to need to untangle ourselves from the complexity of life, pull away and think long thoughts. You hear me say it all the time. Fourthly, but not finally, we are to live lightly. What does that mean? I'm talking about Jesus when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you know what that means? When we got anger, when we're resentful, when we're bitter, when we're offended, when, we're, when someone has hurt us and we're holding on to it, and that's the hurt of life and that's unfair, that is heavy. That's heavy. That is not the way of Christ. His way is a light way. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I got... It's, it's, if you aren't, and if, you, that, if you're carrying that, then you're carrying something I didn't give you. You need to trust me. You take, give me your heavy load. I'll carry that. You take my load. 
My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Fifthly, we are to live peaceably, right? That is, <laughs> forgive. Let's get past things. Let's let go of things. Too, life's too short to stay angry all the time, cynical, bad. You did this. I'm just... I said, you know, make up, uh, laugh, move on. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. Last two. Live prayerfully always. Psalm 18, in your handout right there. <laughs> what does it say? I love you, Lord. You, Lord, you are my strength. The Lord is my rock. Look at this, my fortress and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield. He is the power that saves me and my place of safety. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise. Then he saved me from my enemies. Sometimes those enemies are inside of us. They're right in here. He saved me from my enemies. Have you ever felt dead? the ropes of death entangling? Look at verse 4. The ropes of death entangled me. The floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress, I called out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. And he heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him, it reached his ears. That's what we're talking about. Lord, you, Jesus said, if you hear and do these sayings of mine, I will liken you to the person who builds their house on a rock. And when the storms and the floods come, and they will, your house will stand because you built it on solid ground. And that's the last piece here. We are also in light of this brokenness of our reality where we're so susceptible to loss and a broken heart and wounding. We are to live joyfully and optimistically with hope. <laughs> when we do, once in a while we'll do a funeral uh, I do less and less of them because we have such an amazing staff of pastors now but one of the verses that we'll often read is in 1 Thessalonians I believe it's 4.13 where it says we do not sorrow as those who have no hope and I always say that's what a promise that is because this is not it for us but that's true in life but that's true for where we're heading when we actually die but it's also true for when we're living, when we experience deep sorrow. We do not sorrow as those who have no hope. We have Christ. He is with us. He loves us. He, anyway, I'm going to pray. Let's pray together. Lord, I praise you. I love you. I thank you for the time that we've shared together. Um, uh, you know, your way is a deep way. It's so simple. And it takes childlike faith to enter into the kingdom. But it's far more deep and profound and the roots go way down. Deep calls on a deep, deep waters, Lord. I thank you you don't give us pat answers. You give us, you give us a free will, but there's so much more going on. You allow us our faith to wrestle and grow. Sometimes it's so hard, but may we keep our eyes on you, trust you as the years go by. May the overarching story in our lives be of your grace. I thank you for now. I thank you for then. I bless you in all things. I pray blessing over all who are here as we close the service out um, and our, our time of giving and our closing song. I, I pray for all who are here that you would bless us, Lord. I do. I ask for that. Bless us all, spirit, soul, and body. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.